Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the book of Genesis, chapters 38 and 39. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome tonight to our discussion of Genesis chapter 38 and 39. So from Genesis chapter 3 forward now, we have been looking at the story of unredeemed humanity. The evil one tempted the Virgin Eve. And she, in turn, the Virgin Eve, presented her husband the temptation. And both of them stood before God the Father for quite a discussion. And he said of the serpent, who was the first tempter, he said, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, the Virgin Eve, and between your seed, Satan, and her seed, the Virgin Eve. He, the virgin seed, shall crush your head, Mr. Serpent, and you, Mr. Serpent, shall bruise his heel, the virgin's seeds heal. They are expelled from the garden and they are waiting for this offspring to come, this proto-evangelium, this gospel of good news in Genesis 3.15. In the meantime, they'll be expelled from the garden for their safety so they don't eat from the tree with mortal sin on their soul and be eternally separated from God. Satan is going to exit the garden with them, the snake that's being also expelled. And St. John calls Satan in chapter 14, the prince of the world. Satan becomes the prince of the world. They cling to one another, remember, like never before in this one flesh way that's true reflection of the triune God. It's a beautiful comfort to them. And they find out that the marriage embrace is very good. And there's great godly goodness in that embrace, in that one flesh clinging, because God allows them to become co-creators with him. The godly power to co-create that comes through that embrace. So they're always wondering with the offspring they conceive, is this the one? Is this the one God promised? Is this the one who's going to be the head crusher? So every child they have and only time will tell which one it'll be. The promised offspring was not Cain. Right off the bat, we see that Cain is an envious murderer. He murders his brother Abel, so we know it's not going to be Abel. The head crusher is not Abel. His blood is crying out from the innocent uh, innocent blood is crying out from the cursed ground. Abel's dead and, and uh, maybe it's going to be Seth. Kid number three, maybe it's going to be Seth. He imaged Adam. Maybe he'll be the promised offspring of virgin woman, not anymore, but of the woman who would crush Satan's head and reverse the curse of the ground. Nope, it's not Seth. It's not Cain. It's not Abel. Not Seth. Not Abraham. Not Ishmael. Not Isaac. Not Esau. Not Jacob. It's not going to be Reuben. We know last week him and Bilhah, the power play. It's not going to be him. It's not going to be Simeon and Levite. Too much blood on their hands after Shechem. It will not be Judah, but it will be someone from King Judah's royal lineage. We're starting to get more and more and more clues, but we're looking at it with the binocular vision. We're looking at it from the backstory, right? When Jacob dies, 
He's going to die in a few chapters. He's going to die down in Egypt. They're going to embalm his body and bring it all the way back to Shechem. He's going to be buried in Hebron in the cave at Machpelah that Abraham found. It's the cave of the patriarchs and their wives. This is Jacob's actual grave. He's buried next to Leah, his first wife. But before Jacob died, he's going to give a blessing to his sons. Now, tonight we're going to focus on Judah. And I want you to know chapter 49 now so you can add all these pieces up okay so this is about Judah tonight and before he dies Jacob gives Judah this most incredible blessing and he says Judah your brothers shall praise you your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's sons shall bow down before you hmm this is a pretty good blessing right Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Wow, this is an incredible blessing. Judah's getting the blessing. Not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi. Kid number four. Four is the, the four ordinals to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. This is a universal blessing. This is a big blessing that, that Judah is getting. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. He's going to rule. The scepter will never depart from him. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Who is the son of Judah to whom the obedience of all people belong? A king, a king of kings, a lord of lords, someone who will rule all people with equity. The Messiah head crusher is coming from this blessed line. Jacob's fourth son, Judah. Messiah will come from the line of Judah. And Jacob's blessing will be continued through Judah. It goes on to say more. It's the longest blessing. Binding his foal to the vine and his ass's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Now we know last year when we studied Luke that Jesus will come as a king in that kingly triumphal entry into Jerusalem before his passion. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, there you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had said. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They let, it, they let him take it. Also, Zechariah had predicted, see your king comes righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They had all been waiting for this chosen one, this son of Judah, this king of kings from whom the scepter would never depart, nor will those rulers staff from between his feet until it comes to whom it belongs and to him shall be the obedience of all people. Along the history of Israel, they had hoped it would be King David. 
It wasn't King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. But the son of David, Jesus Christ, the son of Judah, was God's own heart, God's sacred heart, God's loving heart, beating with love to rescue all people, all of Abraham's children who would repent and believe the good news, the proto-evangelium, the evangelium, the gospel. People of Judah, that's what Jerusalem was called at the time, the kingdom of Judah, here is your king, said Pilate. It wasn't what they were expecting. It wasn't the kind of kingdom they were planning on. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. He holds the scepter in his hand or the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. He, this lion of Judah, will perfectly execute the father's plan in the deepest of obedience and he will get the right to judge. That's a kingly right. It says in John 5 that the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son even as they honor the father. He's the king of kings with the right to judge. King Jesus will judge the living and the dead and of his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, there will be no end. We say it at mass in the Nicene Creed. Jesus had taken his place at the right hand of the father. The right hand is the blessing hand of the father. It's the ultimate father's blessing. It's reversed the curse. Not the first Adam, but the second Adam has acquired the final blessing. And how many times have we seen so far that it's the second son, the second Adam that gets the blessing. Revelation 4 sums it up. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast down their crowns before the throne, singing, Worthy art thou, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou did create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. All are bowing down to resurrected, enthroned Jesus. Christ. To him shall be the obedience of all people. So again, we're moving forward from chapter three into the story of unredeemed humanity. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting for a rescuer, an offspring who will crush the head of Satan and reverse the curse, a rescuer, a savior, a redeemer, a messiah, Yeshua, the lion of Judah. They have veiled eyes because they don't know Jesus in the Old Testament. And in all these Old Testament stories, the hope of Jesus is hidden behind the veil until that veil gets lifted. And when is that veil lifted? The veil is lifted the day of the cross. The consummation of a new wedding covenant happens at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head, the body is the church his new bride? And Jesus said in Luke 17, only in Luke 17, where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. It's the body that stands at the foot of the cross where the body is, the ravens will be gathered, the vultures, the eagles. The body, his body is right there at the foot of the cross below him. Mary, his mother, the church, the bride is Marian, virgin. It's a virgin church. The, the John symbolizes the new priesthood. It's the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the final high priest, the final priesthood. It's in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. The new bride, the body of which Jesus is the head, is both a daughter of Israel 
old Israel and a daughter of new Israel. Mary is both. She's a daughter of the old covenant and a daughter of the new covenant. That's why Mary is the hinge pin between the two covenants. She holds them together. She swings to both. She, uh, you see, Mary is in the middle. She's both a daughter of old Israel and a daughter of the new Israel. Mary, the widow of the old Israel, standing at the foot of the cross and becoming the virgin bride of the new Israel. Mary's that hinge pin. Mary represents this new covenant virgin bride of his mystical body, which is the church, and the church is Marian. So Protestants have left both essential components behind. They've left aside the virgin Mary, and they've left aside the new priesthood of Jesus Christ. Mary also is from the line of Judah, the house of David. He's the lion of Judah, and she is the lioness of Judah. And remember, Messiah is lion of Judah and lamb of God. And Jacob's final blessing to his son Judah said, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. The lion of Judah will crush the head of the predator. He was the prey of the predator, but now it's a reversal and he's crushed his head instead. I love this sculpture of the lion of Judah crushing the head of the snake. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. It's a reversal. He's become the predator now. Satan's the prey. It's a trick. He's been duped. For once he was prey for Satan, not anymore. Now he has gone up. He's gone up in a resurrection from death. He's gone up in an ascension into eternal glory at the right hand of the blessing hand of the Father. And he's gone up to, he's elevated as king of kings and lord of lords his own body to feed his mystical body, his bride, the church for the past 2,000 plus years in the Eucharist, his true presence. In a new priesthood of which he is the final high priest and the leaves of the tree of life are now for the healing of all the nations, all Abraham's children. The worldwide blessing that was promised way back in Genesis 12 is now realized. Jesus and Mary together the lion and the lioness of Judah. He stooped down, he couched as a lion and as a lioness, as both. Who dares rouse him up? Virgin Mary, the lioness of Judah who represents the new covenant bride. She is the virgin bride whose virgin bridegroom has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. He has conquered and crushed the prey. The, pre the head of the predator now becomes the prey. It's a new marriage. It's a new Adam. It's a new Eve. The bridegroom has made all things new again. It's a new creation. A new river of life is gushing from his pierced side. The spirit, he's just given over his spirit when his work was perfectly done. He gave over his spirit. And God the Father was very well pleased because this primordial, pre-existent, mystical marriage union was very, very good. And it was in the Father's mind's eye before the beginning of time. Before he even created anything, he had this plan in place. Oh, happy fault of Adam that won for us so great a savior, a new Adam, Jesus Christ. This was God's plan all along. A new virgin Eve will be crowned the queen mother of all the living, the new Eve, because her children 
fully alive. They're born again in baptism through water and the spirit. And the Eucharist they have, they eat the trees of the tree of life, the leaves in this new paradise garden. It starts here at the altar, continued in heaven, eating freely from the tree of life, bathing in the river of life. And we get to come again to see the father face to face one day. Her risen son, the new Adam, is going to open that gate back to the father. And he tells us in John 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the gate. I am the door. Just as Jacob has dreamt with his latter dream, God came down in the form of Jesus Christ. God went back up again in the ascension. Jacob says, truly, this is the true presence of the Lord was in this place. And this is the gateway, Bethel. This is the gateway of God. From Jacob's seed, specifically the seed of Judah, would Yeshua come. If Jesus is going to become fully human, he has to enter through a human bloodline. It'll be through the bloodline of the tribe of Judah. It won't be one of Judah's own three sons, right, that sires this child. But Judah himself, who could have been grandfather, finds himself tonight as father, the father of twins named Perez and Zerah. And it will be through Perez's line that the messianic blessing will come. Because of the courage and the perseverance and the fortitude of one brave widow, I think a heroine of our faith, named Tamar. Revelation says, weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. St. Paul told us in Romans 1 that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. I underlined according to the flesh. That's the important part because Jesus takes on flesh from one person alone, Mary. The human flesh he has is from the DNA of Mary. That flesh is from the tribe of Judah. The flesh of Jesus came through Mary's DNA. She's a daughter of David, a daughter of Judah. The early church knew it. They didn't even have to record it. Ignatius of Antioch talks about it as early as 110. In the Proto-Evangelium of James at Paragraph 10, it says Mary was of the family of David, meaning she is a member of the tribe of Judah. Now, Tamar's story tonight in Genesis chapter 38. We are having this incredible story of Joseph, but the author takes a chapter out to explain this to us. So it's important. The very first unlikely woman listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is Tamar. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by who? Tamar. Another very unlikely woman in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is Rahab. Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab the harlot, the harlot of Jericho. She, she managed a house of prostitution in Jericho and two of Joshua's spies are sent there. They hide out. They spend the night there so they don't get killed. She welcomes them in, not for business, but for a hideout. And the king of Jericho is told that some Israelites are there tonight and they're searching for them. They want to find them and kill them. Bring the men that you have that have come and entered into your house. They're, they're uh, looking for these men of Joshua's. 
place, but Rahab the harlot took the two men and hid them. She said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men have gone, I do not know. Pursue them quickly. You can overtake them. In fact, though, the reality of the matter is she still had them hidden upstairs on the roof under the thatch. And so the men pursued them all the way to Jordan. She threw them off the trail. She saved Israel by her action. They weren't annihilated that night. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut and Rahab had helped save Israel. Rahab, the harlot from Jericho. She's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She will convert to the God of Jacob and uh, Rahab, the harlot, her father's household, all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. She dwelt in the land of Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Rahab is the father of Boaz. The, and, and Hebrews lists Rahab in the, in the hall of faith. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. James talks about Rahab in relation to faith versus works. He says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works? She didn't even have faith yet, the faith of Israel. She was justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them another way. Another very unlikely woman in the genealogy of Jesus Christ was Ruth. Why? Because Ruth's a foreign Moabite. Do you remember where the origin of the Moabites came from? We've had it in Genesis. Who are the Moabites? Remember in Genesis 19, they're escaping Sodom and they're not supposed to look back. Lot's family and Lot's wife looks back and she's turned to a pillar of salt. And so the girls take up with their father in a cave, a paternal incest. And from that union with one girl come the Moabites, the other girl come the Ammonites. Ruth is a Moabite. See the grace of God. The grace of God is bigger than anything. These most unlikely women are being used in the genealogy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Another unlikely woman in that genealogy. Uh, and David was the father of King Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't even give us the woman's name, the wife of Uriah. Well, Uriah was killed on the front lines. He was sent to the front lines by King David. Why? Because David saw the wife of Uriah bathing on the rooftop over and sent for her. Her name was beautiful bathing Bathsheba. And she also finds herself an unlikely woman in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Very unlikely for this next woman to be in the genealogy because she's a virgin. How many virgins do you know are in a genealogy? One, that's right, the virgins. Virgins don't typically have a pedagogy. One does, the Virgin Mary. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the anointed one. We know that the angel Gabriel came to Mary, told her that the Lord God would give to him, the baby in her womb would give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's the Holy Spirit and Mary. Mary belongs to the house of David. The, and Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I have no husband? Mary did not say, how can this be? Because I'm not from the house of David. She is from the house of David. 
Tamar is the first unlikely woman of the five listed in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ. All five women are biblical heroines because of their yes to life. And they will all five have a part leading to the advent of Messiah, of Yeshua, the son of the tribe of Judah. Tamar is the first, and this is our study tonight. This is Tamar's story in Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, the rabbis tell us that at this time, why was this section placed here? We're in this wonderful story of Joseph, and, and it interrupts to tell us this story. To teach us that his, Judah's brothers, demoted him of his high position when they saw their father's distress. They said, you told us to sell him, Judah. You told us to return to him, and we would have obeyed you. He, he, and he turned away from his brothers. So we see that uh, there's an altercation Perhaps between the brothers, Judah, they heeded his word to sell Joseph when they saw that it destroyed their father, Jacob. They're thinking it wasn't such a good idea and they want to disassociate now from Judah. Judah goes down to the Canaanite country, takes Canaanite wives. It happened at this time, Judah went down from his brothers. He turned to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughters of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And he named him Ur. <laughs> again, she conceived and bore a son. And she called him Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. She was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar must come from this Canaanite country. But Ur's, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. The Lord is going to strike down wicked Ur for some reason. We don't know why. Judah said to Onan, now go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was so displeasing in the sight of the Lord that the Lord slew him also. So now we have two slewn brothers stricken down by the Lord himself in a very quick manner. Now the Jewish rabbis say this was evil in the eyes of the Lord. His evil, like the evil of Onan's, Ur's evil was like the evil of Onan's in that he wasted his semen. As it is written in connection with Onan, that he put him to death also, meaning that Ur's death, so was Onan's death. So why should Ur waste his semen? So that Tamar would not become pregnant and her beauty be impaired. Ah, interesting. When I looked up Onanism in the dictionary, yes, it's a word in the dictionary, the first de definition was masturbation. That's a wasting of the seed, a wasting of the semen of life. And that is displeasing to the Lord. These men were struck dead for that. The second definition was coitus interruptus, which is a withdrawal method to prevent birth. The Latin onissimus from the name Onan from Genesis 38, who practiced coitus interruptus. So this is a real word. It's named after Onan in Genesis 38. And now you know. 
the rest of the story, right? Condoms would also have a similar effect as this because you're wasting, you're collecting the semen and spilling it out and wasting it, wasting the precious seed of life. God is a God of life and life alone. Onan, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord and the Lord slew him. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my third son, grows up. For Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. He really doesn't want to give Shelah to Tamar right now. She's killed the first one. She's killed the second one in his mind. She hasn't really, but in his mind. Now, if, if he gives his third son, he'll die too with her. So he tells her, yes, yes, I'll give you the third son, but go away for a while. That was part one of the book of Genesis chapters 38 and 39 on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.